It was Forrest Gump who said, that's a good way to begin a sermon, right? (laughs) Forrest Gump said, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Plato said, a good decision is based on knowledge and not on numbers. And both Gump and Plato agree with one another in their own way that life is not merely black and white. Life is gray. We live somewhere in the gray. So you're going to need wisdom instead of remedies. You're going to need wisdom in life instead of remedies. And that's the truth of our text this morning. Chapter 14 is a story of predicaments. There's a lot of predicaments in this text. And predicaments is the title of my sermon. This is a story of predicaments. This is a sermon about predicaments. And the trouble that you find in 2 Samuel 14, the trouble is not just for the characters, but you as the reader face them as well. You see, as a reader, this is a difficult text. It's a difficult text to interpret, to understand. Commentators are actually divided on the meaning. They're divided on interpretation. So there's lots of questions like, was the woman of Tekoa truly a wise woman? Is she a wise woman or is she a troublemaker? And Joab, is Joab a good guy in the story? Is Joab doing a good thing? Is he doing a selfish thing? Is he helping David or is he wanting to help Absalom. And what's going on? It's not an easy text to decipher. And in the Hebrew, if you're reading the Hebrew, the Hebrew is just difficult to read. And sometimes in this text, it's, it's, it's literally untranslatable. And I believe it is all on purpose. It is all on purpose. You see, the narrator has masterfully baked into the text itself predicaments. Predicaments that you, the reader, have to solve as you are seeing the predicaments that the characters themselves are involved in. You see, the characters face, all these different characters are facing their own predicaments. And then you as a reader, you are challenged with predicaments yourself. How will you define, how will you discern the text? How will you deal with the character's difficulty as you have to face your own? What is the Lord teaching us in this text? What is the Holy Spirit teaching his church? The answer is not based on numbers. It's based on knowledge. So just like the characters in this story, you too will need wisdom to find the answers. So let's dive right into the first difficulty. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Now we have to solve our first exegetical question, our first exegetical difficulty. In the Hebrew, the verb went, well, the verb went is not in the Hebrew. The Hebrew literally reads, Joab knew that the heart of the king was on Absalom. 
Joab knew that the heart of the king was on Absalom. Joab could see that David was wrestling. He was wrestling with his heart. He's wrestling with a difficulty. And what was on his heart? Was it perhaps he wanted Absalom back? Did he want Absalom back and he's trying to figure out how to make it happen? Or perhaps he's against Absalom and he's trying to figure out how he can punish him. He's trying to figure out when he can march out against his son. He had a predicament. And the predicament was on his heart. But the question for us reader is, as the readers is, what's the difficulty? What's the predicament? And I think it's hard to understand because... We are complicated creatures. We're very complicated creatures. So life is often confusing, like the text. Take David, perhaps. Perhaps David loved Absalom. Perhaps he wanted Absalom back, but at the same time, he wanted Absalom punished for murdering Amnon. Perhaps he's wrestling with both of these difficulties. It's difficult. Life's difficult. But you know what's not difficult? The law. The law is not gray. The law is black and white. And the law called for the death penalty. Absalom was a murderer. The law is not black and white. But it's always not that easy. You see, life is hardly and simply black and white. Life is gray. And in the gray, we don't need numbers. We need knowledge. We have to know how to apply the law and follow God's word when the answers are not so readily easy to make. And we will see that truth this morning. Verse 2, and Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. Here we have another exegetical decision to make. Was the woman truly a wise woman? The word wise is the same word that the narrator just used in the previous chapter to describe Jonadab. But the translators translated it crafty. Oh, Jonadab, crafty Jonadab. And now they use the same word. Is the woman from Tokoa likewise crafty? And it also says that she is called, as a wise woman, called to pretend. Joab calls her and says, pretend to be a mourner. Now that verb pretend is a carryover from the chapter when Jonadab, the crafty Jonadab, said to Amnon, go and pretend to be ill so that you can get what your sinful heart desires. And so the question for us in this text is, is the woman from Tekoa truly a wise woman or is she crafty like Jonadab? And I'll just say, from the pulpit, I have to give an answer. I'm going to go with, <laughs> I've thought through it, I've thought through it a bunch. I, I'm going I'm to go with the translators with the text and say that she is a wise woman. You see, craftiness is the art of selfishness. Craftiness is the art of getting what you want, even if it's sinful. 
Remember I said last week, craftiness is what Christians do. Craftiness is what Christians do to enjoy their sin as not to get caught. And really good Christians, the really good crafty ones, they can do it in such a way that they enjoy their sin and others are calling it pious. They can do it in such a way that their sin looks pious. Very crafty. We can be very crafty. But this wise woman was called to pretend not to get something. She was called not to, she's, she's, she's called to pretend not to get something for herself. She's actually called to pretend to help someone else. And so Joab says, verse 3, go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Joab put words in her mouth. So now we have another predicament. Here's a predicament. Was this a lie? Was this a lie? Was this evil? What Joab is asking for. Was this a lie? Was this evil? Was the woman wise? Like I said, I believe she's wise. And wisdom is prudent. And wisdom seeks the right way. Proverbs 4, verses 5 through 7, the proverb says, Get wisdom. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever else you get, get insight. We need wisdom. We need insight. We need knowledge. Because wisdom keeps you in truth, and knowledge guards you from the evil of this world. Wisdom protects you from yourself. Wisdom helps protect you from harming yourself, keeps you from harming yourself. We need God's word, and we need wisdom. And to quote the great Gump once more, the word and wisdom go together like peas and carrots. We need both word, we need wisdom. Verse 4, when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage to the king, said, save me, O king. The king said, what's your trouble? And then she gives us a story of her two sons out in a field. They argue, one son kills the other son. Kind of reminds you of the first fracticide, does it not? When Cain killed Abel, out in the field, the two were arguing, out in the field. And like Cain, this woman was worried about justice. So her two sons are dead, and like Cain, she's now worried about justice. Verse 7. She says, and now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. The clan was calling for what the law required. The clan was calling for what Torah commanded the clan to do. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But it wasn't that easy. Look at verse 7. Take the life of the brother whom he killed, verse 7, and so they would destroy the air also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. What the woman is saying is, there's the law. But there's also my heart. There's the law, but there's my heart. They want to take my only son. 
There's the law, but there's her heart. There's law, but there's also love. And there's law, and there's also her future. You see, as a widow in ancient Israel, as a widow without an heir, all of her possessions would go to the clan, to the family, the next man, next men in line. And so the clause, the whole clan has risen against me, is an accusation. She is saying that my clan wants the law because they can get in the law what they want. The law and their use of it is crafty. Here's the craftiness. They want to use the law to get rich, to get my life. So you got great difficulties, two great difficulties with the law. The law says, thus saith the Lord, but the woman's saying, but what about my heart? And what about my future? What about my life? That's a predicament if I ever saw one, right? The woman has a predicament. She didn't want justice, numbers. She wanted equity, knowledge. In law, equity refers to a particular set of remedies distinguished from the legal ones. A court typically awards equitable remedies when legal remedies are insufficient and or inadequate. Yes, the law says death. That's the law, death. But the woman needed life. Love is the greater law. Equity makes sure the right and just thing happens even if it goes against the letter of the law. And David seems to agree. He tells the woman, hey, go home. I got a decision, and it seems favorable. Go home. We'll fix it. It'll, be all, it'll all work out. But the woman, no, no, no. She's not, no, I'm not leaving here. I'm not going back home without an answer. Verse 9, and the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt my lord the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. This was a call for equity. The woman asked David, she said, violate the law, please, and let the guilt lay on me. You will be guiltless. Show mercy. And David agrees. David agrees. And here's a predicament for you. Was it biblical? Was it biblical for David to violate Torah? Doesn't God want perfect obedience? He does. Our good Presbyterian brothers would say that God wants perfect, perpetual obedience. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith. Perfect, and we agree. (laughs) Perfect, perpetual obedience. Black and white. But what about Rahab? (laughs) You see where I'm going with this? Rahab lied to preserve Israel. Did she break the ninth commandment? That's a number. The ninth. 
But the Bible commends her for her faith. And isn't faith expressed by works? And what was her work? She lied. God in the Old Testament often commands Israel to do military deception. Did God violate the ninth commandment? You see, the law is not always so easy to apply to life because life is not black and white. So there are situations where lying is not just permissible, but the right thing to do. And similar to the ninth commandment, sometimes it's permissible to kill. And so the Lord arms the state with the sword. Did God put Cain to death for murdering Abel? And what kept David from the death penalty when he murdered the righteous Uriah the Hittite? You see, the application of the law is not necessarily black and white. It's always simply, excuse me, it isn't always simply strict justice with God. Sometimes he's equitable. Sometimes he's gracious. And it turns out that truth and love go together like peas and carrots. You see, the woman needed a decree for mercy because the law permitted an avenger of blood to track down and kill the murderer. Verse 11, she said, please let the king invoke the Lord, your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son not be destroyed. You see, according to the law, the son could be avenged, right? If the, if the other son didn't get to the refuge, refugee city, then an avenger of blood could come and kill the son. And so the woman needed that law, that rule, wiped off the books concerning her son that was still alive. She needed the law wiped off. She needed David to show mercy, to invoke the Lord. And David answered, verse 11, he said, as the Lord lives. He, gave, he gives an oath. And that's powerful. As the Lord lives. Not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. David promised before the Lord to provide mercy in the face of justice, which sets up another predicament. David now faces a new predicament. Verse 12, the woman said, please let your servant speak. He says, speak. Verse 13, and the woman said, why then? Have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. The woman says, by making the oath, you have convicted yourself. By withholding mercy, David was hurting his own kingdom because Absalom is the heir to the throne. And by withholding Absalom access to the throne, he had exiled Israel's future, he has quenched Israel's coal. And then the woman wisely, she's a wise woman, she then provides a theological justification for bringing him back, verse 14. She says, we must all die. 
We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. That's strict justice. She's saying that's the numbers. Those are the numbers. We're all going to die. That's the math. That's the law. Inescapable. Your days, your hours right now are being spilt to the ground and the earth is swallowing up time itself and will one day consume us all. For the wages of sin is death. Strict justice. But then she says, but God will not take away life and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. We have a predicament. The woman has a predicament. David has a predicament. We have the same predicament. Death is coming. We cannot outrun the law. That's the predicament of all predicaments. Yet God contravenes his own system to create and spare life instead. Think about it. He condemned Adam and Eve to death, did he not? He condemned Adam and Eve to death, and after he condemned them in the garden, David named his wife Eve the mother of the living. That's after the condemnation, the mother of the living. He promised Adam and Eve, he promised Eve pain and childbearing, but what does he promise in the pain of childbearing? Life. He said to Adam, you will labor and toil all the days of your life. Now we have to work hard. But we get to work. Work is productivity. Work is life. So even in the curse, there's grace. It isn't law. You see, grace was the theological justification for this reconciliation. The Lord judges sinners, but he also provides a way of escape. That's what the woman's saying. He is just and merciful. So David could show mercy, verse 17. And the servant thought, the word of my Lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my Lord, the king, he is like an angel. She's asking for an answer to show mercy. Don't do the letter of the law. Like an angel of the Lord, discern the good and the evil. Do what is right. Don't do the law. Strictly put forth. Do love. Do mercy. Do grace. And God be with you. Don't do the letter of the law. Do what is right. Do what is just. She wanted life. She needed mercy. And then David the wise, David, she does call him wise, and he's very wise. He, he figures out what the story's all about. He says, hey, is Joab behind all this? <laughs> I can smell Joab's hand behind all this. And the woman agrees it was Joab. And she also agrees that Joab was not guilty in doing this, but Joab was seeking to help. Verse 20, in order to change the course of things, your servant, Joab did this. He did this to change things. Your heart was swollen with trouble. You had this predicament. He's trying to provide a way out. And then she says, my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know things that are on the earth, to know all the things on the earth. So now we have another predicament. Now we have Joab's predicament. 
And Joab has a predicament. Joab's just lied to the king, and the king could easily do the law to Joab. Off with your head. It's a tense situation, another predicament. Predicaments all over the place. But the tension is resolved quite quickly. David says, verse 21, the king said to Joab, behold, now I grant this, go bring back the young man. Joab filled his face and he said, I know I have found favor in your sight and you've blessed the servant by granting the request of your servant. So Joab went and gathered Absalom, brought him to Jerusalem. But the king said, but there's a caveat. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. Now we face another predicament. Absalom now has a predicament. And so Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Just like Cain. God was gracious to Cain, withheld justice, but also said, you are no longer welcome into my presence. With the same verbs that are used now here in our text with Absalom. He was spared, but he wasn't allowed presence before the king. Absalom was shunned, but the narrator responds, hey, he's shunned, but the narrator responds, but at least you got your looks, right? (laughs) Verse 25, now in all of Israel, there was no one as praised for his handsome appearance. From the crown, you know, from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, beautiful, no blemish. And man, did you see the hair? Got to see the hair. (laughs) <laughs> and when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, and the weight of his hair on his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight, beautiful golden locks. And did you see his family, a great family? There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a very beautiful woman, good-looking, good home. Surely he's destined for evangelical stardom. (laughs) Our culture operates on Absalom's approach. Just look at the big church where the executive pastor is known for his warmth warmth and success rather than his doctrine. One commentator of this text said, Today's market sensitive pastors are relationally savvy, known more for their humor than their spirituality. Rather than eliciting the feelings of sin and misery, they make people feel good about themselves. So here's a predicament, looking at Absalom and his golden locks. Do we go by outward appearances? Are we called to judge people outwardly? We know the numbers. Absalom is gorgeous. Absalom is blessed. Blessed Absalom. But what about knowledge? You see, Torah actually only gives two reasons in the Old Testament for men cutting their hair. One was incompletion of their Nazarite vow. They could cut their hair after their Nazarite vow. And two, they could cut their hair to enter into a state of ceremonial cleanliness. But Absalom is not cutting his hair for any of these things that the Lord God commands. He's cutting his hair for his own self because he got heavy. He got a big old heavy head of hair. Beautiful hair. And I know who's jealous. Because some of you lack the numbers. Some of you have no numbers. But ironically, his hair would be his death. 
And when he dies, by the time he dies, all his sons will already be dead before him. He will lose everything. That's the Bible's way of saying he's not blessed. He's cursed. Cursed Absalom. The point, knowledge over numbers. Wisdom judges substance over style. And Absalom grew tired of his exile. He burned Joab's field to the ground to gain an audience to set up one last predicament. And what would David do? Verse 32, you know, he burns down the field. Joab comes, why'd you burn my field? Absalom answered, behold, I sent word to you. Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Was there guilt in Absalom? You bet. Murderer. I mean, Amnon did rape his sister, though. But no, that would be vengeance. And the vengeance belongs to the Lord. So you have to wrestle with these things. It's a predicament. And so the story ends with David facing his predicament face to face. What would David do? What is David going to do? Is he going to obey the law? Because he's guilty. It's an, does he deserve death? Yeah, I mean, he answered his own decree. If there's any guilt in me, let me die. Or would David show mercy? It's a predicament. And the answer, verse 33, then Joab went to the king and told him and summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. And the kiss signifies that he has been restored to royal favor. Now you face a predicament. As a reader, was this biblical? Was this wise? The one thing we do know is that it is providential. For God decreed when David violated the law that the sword would not depart from your house. Absalom is back home. David's predicament was far from resolved. It has only begun. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get except the gospel. Except the gospel. There is certainty in the gospel. Eternal life is certain. You see, we will all live eternally. We were created forever. But there is a predicament. What kind of life are you going to have? 
In our sins, we stand condemned before the Lord. We stand condemned to eternal hell. You can't outrun God's justice. You can't outrun his law. It is black and white, yet God has contravened. He's contravened his own system of death. You see, in the wisdom of the gospel, we find life instead of death. For Christ Jesus spilled his blood like water to cleanse you from all your sins. And Christ lived this perfect, righteous life. When he faced predicaments in his life, he had difficulties in his life, he always answered accordingly to truth and to love. He was wise. And you can receive his wisdom. You can receive his righteousness and have eternal life as the beloved of God in no other way than faith alone. So you have the easiest decision ever to make. And the decision before you this morning is this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your only comfort in life and in death? Do you believe that Christ is your only comfort in life and in death? Do you believe that he has fully paid for all your sins with his precious blood? Do you believe that he has set you free from the tyranny of the devil? Do you believe that he's watching over you in such a way that not a hair from your head falls to the ground without the will of your Father in heaven? And do you believe that he will preserve you, that he is working all things together for your salvation? If you believe that, then the numbers are not stacked against you, for you are the righteousness of God, and there is now no more condemnation. God is contravened in your behalf by sending his son to die on the cross for your sins. And you will face many predicaments in life going forward. Even as a Christian, you're going to face many predicaments and most of those predicaments are going to be the result of your own sin and your own sinful nature with which you will struggle your whole life long. But no matter how you answer the predicament, good or bad, You are the righteousness of God. So you're left with only one decision this morning, trusting in Christ, and that decision is this. How are you going to thank him for such a deliverance? And the answer is not based on numbers. It's based on knowledge. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.